Good morning, Four Corners Church. It is a pleasure to come to you once again with God's Word, to come and preach the Scriptures to God's people, to be able to rally together around the Word. We know that the Word is uh, helpful for us in various seasons of life, and this this has been and will continue to be a very strange season of life, but we are grateful that God has given us the treasure of His Word. And so we come now to, uh, to, to read it, to study it, and to, uh, to ask the Lord to illuminate it for us by His Spirit. We are continuing our series in Paul's letter to the Romans. And today we finish the greeting. Uh, the greeting of Romans runs from verses 1 to 7, chapter 1, verses 1 to 7. And so I'd ask you now to go ahead and turn there in your Bibles. And as I said last week, uh, have your children, if, if you're able, to, to hold a Bible in their hands and to be able to, to look at the passage, even if they can't read it, but to get used to holding the Word of God in their hands and directing their eyes to it. We've looked at the man behind the letter uh, which we, uh, which was in verse 1, and then the message in the letter, verses 2 to 4. And now we are focused on the mission of the letter. So we're looking at the greeting, those first seven verses, and then at this point we are now in the mission of the letter in those last three verses of the greeting, verses 5 to 7. The title for the sermon this morning is The Mission of the Letter, Part 2. So we started last week, and we're going to finish up uh, this week. In these last three verses of the greeting, the Apostle Paul introduces his mission, and he does so from three angles. And by the way, these are the three points that I gave you last week. We covered the first two, and we'll cover the third today, but you can go back and and look at those. But the three angles, or the three points we looked at last week, first, his apostleship. God has graciously given Paul the ministry of apostleship to carry out the mission. And so it's through Paul's vocation and it's through Paul's ministry that the, the mission of God will be carried forward. And we see, we see this with all of the apostles, that the apostles were a, a unique means that God used to carry forward his mission of bringing forward his salvation, of bringing forward his gospel. So we see his apostleship. Secondly, as we think about his mission, we see his aim. The purpose or aim of the mission is twofold, as we talked about last week. There is the immediate aim, which is the obedience of faith. And then there is the ultimate aim, which is for the sake of Christ's name. And so Paul, what's he about? What's his purpose? What's the purpose and mission? What's the purpose of the mission of God? What's the aim? What are we aiming at? What was Paul aiming at? The obedience of faith in the hearts and minds of people for the sake of Christ's name. And today we come to the third point or the third aspect of Paul's mission, his audience, the people, the people to whom he writes, the people who are the beneficiaries and recipients of, and even participants in this mission of Paul, this mission of God. So how does Paul introduce, greet, or describe these people to whom he writes, or his audience, his readers. He does so in three major 
ways. And these are going to be our three points for today. So think about it this way. We're looking at the mission of God and under the mission of God, we're looking at his apostleship, his aim, and now his audience. And now today we're going to look at this third point in detail, his audience. And underneath that, we now have three major ways that he describes them. So here they are, three points for today. Paul's audience is positioned missionally, identified Christologically, and blessed comprehensively. So that's what we're going to spend our time looking at today. So I recognize you may need to pause at this point and have your children write those down and help them with some spelling, uh, but I'm going to try to, to go through each of those and explain, and hopefully the children, as they listen, will be able to understand basically what those points are meant to convey. But before we dig in, I want you to take note of something very important. Before we get into the details of this passage of verses 5 to 7, or, or, or really 6 to 7, the last couple of verses of the greeting, I want you to take note of this. Here, in these verses, we are going to get a concise, to the point, and yet rich description of what a Christian is. It's amazing as we go through this letter in places where you would not expect it. I mean, we all expect to find great things in Romans chapter 8. And our gospel community group has recently started trying to memorize this with the children. And I'm sure uh, a number of you have, if you're picking a, a part of Romans to memorize, Romans 8 is, is an ideal place to go. And so we expect in passages like that to find this, this richness about what it means to be a Christian. But it's interesting here, we find so much just in the greeting of this letter. And so what we have here is a description of what a Christian is. And this is helpful for all of us. So if you're listening and you're not a believer, I hope that this will give you a better understanding of uh, the Christians that you know, the Christians in your life. Maybe family, maybe you have a family member at Four Corners and that's why, why you're listening. Uh, maybe you've just somehow stumbled upon this sermon and you're just wondering what is a Christian anyway. I think what we're going to see today will help you a lot to understand who Christians are. But it's also helpful for new believers. As you come to Christ, as Christ uh, draws you to himself, as he saves you, there's a lot that we need to grow in in terms of our understanding. We need to understand more and more of who Christ is and what he's done for us. Uh, to use John Murray's language, we need to understand more and more redemption accomplished and applied. More about our salvation, more about who we are in Christ. And so this is a great set of verses and set of ideas to propel us forward. But not just for unbelievers or new believers. This is also helpful for mature believers. I think sometimes in the Christian life, we lay down that foundation, we have that foundation, but then we go on and, and sometimes the foundation stones of the Christian life begin to get a little murky. Uh, they begin to, to get a, a little bit unclear to us. And so I hope that today, through this text, through this sermon, those of us who have been in the faith for a long time or who've been growing in Christ, who, who have uh, been a Christian for a while, will come to revisit some of those fundamentals uh, concerning who we are as believers, as Christians. So let's go to our text. 
Romans chapter 1. And as we've been doing throughout this greeting, we'll read all of verses 1 to 7. But today our attention will be on verses 6 to 7. We covered verse 5 last week. So let's read God's Word together. Romans chapter 1, verses 1 to 7. This is the Word of God. It is perfect and profitable for His people. Here we are. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures concerning his son, who is descended from David according to the flesh and was declared to be the son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all the nations. And now for what we're going to look at today, verse 6, including you who are called to belong to Jesus Christ, to all those in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Let's ask Him for His help, help to focus. I know it's not the same sitting in front of a computer screen, and uh, I know to varying degrees we are struggling with having our kids seated and, and focused, but uh, my prayer for us today is that we will, we will be able to, to give uh, this text our attention and that we will grow as the Holy Spirit takes these precious words from God and applies them to our hearts. So let's go to the Lord, ask for His grace, ask for His help, ask Him to do great things through His Word this day. Our Father, what a joy, what a privilege it is to come before and under Your Word. God, you have not left us in the dark. You have not left us to our own devices. You have not left us without hope. You have given us a revelation of who you are, and you have given us a revelation of your revelation in Christ. You have, you have given us the word about Christ, Old Testament and New Testament, all declaring the excellencies of our Lord Jesus Christ. Father, we pray today as we dip in once again to the text of Romans, one of the most significant, influential, impactful books of the Bible throughout Christian history. As we come to these words, we ask that your Holy Spirit would be merciful and gracious to us as we understand your word, God, that you would illuminate it, that you would help us to see it clearly, and that you would apply it to our hearts by your spirit. We're grateful for what you have done in our lives by your word. We, as Christians, can all bear witness to the grace that you have worked into our lives, that you've massaged into our lives through the scriptures over the years. And God, once again today, we come before you in your word. We ask that the same would happen today, that this would be a part of our sanctification, 
that this would be a part of our growth into the likeness of your beloved Son. Father, thank you for the privilege that we have to gather around the text of Scripture. We know that we're not gathered in person, and we we look forward to the day when that will happen again. But for today, we thank you that we get to gather in this way around your Word. And we pray all of this in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. So we're going to begin this morning looking at the first, uh, the first of the major ways, three major ways uh, that Paul describes his audience. And the first of those is that they are positioned missionally. His audience, those to whom he is writing, they are positioned missionally. In verse 5, Paul gives the scope of his mission, what we looked at last week, among all the nations, he says, or among all the Gentiles. And then in verses 6 to 7, we read this, including you who are called to belong to Jesus Christ, to all those in Rome. What Paul is doing here is situating his readers within his overall mission. He is positioning them missionally. He's positioning his readers missionally. Paul is an apostle, and specifically, he is an apostle to the Gentiles, that is, the non-Jewish nations. And this mission involves many different peoples. He, he is bringing the gospel to all the nations. Paul has been working mostly in the East, and now he is writing to Christians in the West. And, and as we talked about early on when we started this series, Paul is looking to go to Spain even further west. This mission has involved many different peoples and places in the Mediterranean world, but among those people included in those people are the believers in Rome. Rome is the capital city of the Roman Empire, and Christianity was probably planted in Rome by the Jewish believers who returned from Jerusalem after Pentecost. So you'll remember there, Acts chapter 2, Peter is preaching to all of these Jewish people who have come to Jerusalem, people from all over the, the Mediterranean world, all over the world. And some of those who are present in Acts 2, who trust in Christ, who are cut to the heart, who are baptized, are from the city of Rome. And they go back to Rome, as all of the other people, uh, many of them went back to the places that they were from. And they go back to Rome. And most believe that that, that group of, of newly founded Christians probably planted various churches, planted Christianity in the city of Rome. But it appears from the letter of Romans itself that the makeup of the Roman house churches had become predominantly Gentile by the time Paul is writing in A.D. 57. So you're talking about over 20 years since Pentecost. And if you look at the history between the, the early 30s when, the, the, when Christianity was planted in Rome and then the late 50s when Paul is writing to the Roman Christians, situated in the middle of that is the expulsion of a large number of Jewish people from Rome in, in AD 49. So we have this, it's referred to in Acts 18, this expulsion 
of uh, Jewish people in, in AD 49. And so probably by the time you get to AD 57, the church in Rome is largely Gentile. And we see this throughout the letter. It's clear from Romans that Paul is writing predominantly to Christians who are Gentiles, non-Jews. Let me give you an example of this, very close in proximity to the passage that we're in. Romans 1.13, Paul says this, I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that I have often intended to come to you, but thus far have been prevented in order that I may reap some harvest among you, and here it is, as well as among the rest of the Gentiles. And so as Paul writes to these believers in Rome, he he recognizes that they are largely Gentile believers, and he writes to them as he does to the rest of the Gentiles. He, he ministers to them as he does to the rest of the Gentiles. So Christians in Rome, the readers of Paul's letter, the original audience, mainly Gentile, but with some Jewish presence. And we see the Jewish presence throughout the letter in various statements, but also in chapter 16. Remember at the end of the letter, you get all of those names of people and some of those like Paul are Jewish. So largely Gentile in composition, but with some Jews. And by positioning his readers within his mission, within his mission, Paul is also establishing his authority over them as an apostle. So whether he is writing to Jews or Gentiles, Paul is an apostle. Like all of the other apostles, he has that authority as an apostle. And that's why he writes to all those in Rome. So largely they fall under Paul's apostolic mission to the Gentiles, but all of them fall under Paul's authority as an apostle. But we have to put this authority that Paul is exercising or that Paul is asserting, we have to put this in the context of what he has already said. Why is Paul here asserting or exercising his authority as an apostle? And the answer is for the sake of building the Christians up. And as I mentioned before, continuing the mission further west to Spain. And I think there is an implication for us here as we think about authority within the church. So we recognize that there, there, are, there, there is authority within the local church. The, the elders or shepherds or overseers have an authority within the local church, but also leaders within various ministries of the church have a, a kind of authority. And so how do we think about our authority, uh, lower, much, lo, much more lowercase a uh, compared to Paul as, as an apostle, but how do we think about authority within the local church? And I think an implication is this. We don't exercise authority for our own sake, but for the sake of the mission, for the sake of the name. Paul, we see, we see this in 2 Corinthians. Paul will argue for his position as an apostle. He will assert his authority as an apostle, but he always does so humbly and with the recognition that he's not uh, power hungry. He's not interested in just having or exercising or asserting authority for his own sake, but for the sake of the mission, for the sake of Christ's glorious 
name. And that's the only reason that anyone has any authority within any church is for the sake of this mission, for the sake of this name. Before we move on to Paul's description of his audience, which we get in these verses, I want to draw out one more implication, a general implication, and it's this. This greeting to his readers reminds us that ministry, and this is very important, ministry is about people. Ministry is about people. It's about belief and obedience within the hearts of real people. It's about people glorifying Christ. And what that tells us is just as Paul's ministry, as he, as he writes to these believers, and we're going to go on to see in subsequent verses his heart for these believers, his attitude towards them, his prayers on their behalf. But what we're seeing here already in Paul addressing real people in this real city of Rome is that as Paul thinks about his vocation, his ministry, he has in mind real human beings. Ministry is about real people. And that tells us that ministry, work and service within the local church, is not about tasks. It's not about events. It's not about programs or statistics. It is about none of those things. It is about individual souls bowing to Christ. That's what should drive every single ministry within Four Corners Church, whether it's men's ministry or women's ministry, children's ministry, the diaconate, the eldership, whatever ministry, whatever facet of the ministry of Four Corners Church, whatever it is, we recognize that it must be about the good of people for the glory of Christ. So, Paul's readers... His audience is positioned missionally. But now let's take a look at how he describes his readers. And that brings us to our second point. So for those taking notes, we've looked at the fact that they are positioned missionally. And now our second point, they are identified Christologically. Paul begins his description of his readers with the words in verse 6, including you who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. Called to belong to Jesus Christ. This is obviously an umbrella idea. It covers all and encapsulates all that will follow. Who is a Christian? We ask the question, what does it mean to be a Christian? Who is a Christian at the core in an overarching definitive way a Christian is one who is called to belong to Jesus Christ. This is really a synonym for Christian. He is writing to those in Rome who are also Christians, who are also those called to belong to Jesus Christ. Now, it's important to see that this calling is the call of Romans 8, verse 30. So Romans 8, verse 30, Paul says this, and those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. We need to understand that this calling that Paul is referring to here and the calling that Paul is referring to in Romans 8, 
verse 30. This is not the same as the general call that goes out to all people to believe in the gospel. The call that goes out to all people, we see it very early on in, in Mark 1.15. Jesus went out preaching, the time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand, repent and believe in the gospel. We see it with Paul in Acts 17. He goes to the Areopagus. He preaches the gospel to all. All are called to repent and believe in Christ, but not all come. This calling here is not the general call that goes out to all where some do and some do not listen, heed, obey, believe, come, but this is the effectual call of the Holy Spirit. This is the irresistible call that coincides with a changed heart. I like the way John MacArthur describes it. He says, this calling is the effecting of the plan of election. So every person who is a Christian is a Christian because they were called effectually by the Holy Spirit to the effect that they are saved and stemming from the predestination that goes all the way back to the beginning. And that's what Paul has in mind in Romans 8.30 when he says, those whom he predestined, he also called. Not all are predestined, only some, many, whom God will save throughout history. And those whom he has predestined, he has also called. And that is what Paul has in mind here when he refers to these believers as the call, those who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. And this calling to belong to Jesus Christ puts Christ at the center. This call is to belong to Him. They are the called of Jesus Christ. Christ, once again, is placed at the center. And that's why I've entitled this point that they are identified Christologically, and we've seen this before. In fact, we have seen this at every layer of Paul's greeting, this Christological emphasis. So let me just show you this. It's really fascinating. When you go through and you begin at verse 1, you see how Christ-centered Paul's greeting really is. So Paul himself is a servant of Christ, verse 1. The gospel he preaches concerns God's Son, Jesus Christ our Lord, verses 3 to 4. His ministry of apostleship is through Christ, verse 5. And the purpose of his mission, the purpose of his apostleship, the purpose of it all is for the sake of Christ's name, verse 5. So we shouldn't be surprised when Christians are boiled down to this one identifier. What is a Christian? someone who is called to belong to Jesus Christ. Do you see the Christ-centeredness of everything that Paul has said? So as we think about this, just pause for a moment, think about the implication of this. And this is a fact that we have returned to repeatedly ever since the beginning in verse 1 when we saw that Paul described himself as a servant or a slave of Christ. The implication there. And the implication here is the same. If you are called to belong to Christ, Christian, then you are not your own. And that is precisely what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 6, verses 19 to 20. He says, 
You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. You know, in theory, we all think this way if we're believers. Of course, I am not my own. I belong to Christ. Christ has purchased me with his own blood. I am a slave. I am a servant of the Lord Jesus Christ. I think intuitively we all know this as Christians. We, we all believed in the Lord. If we really are Christians, we all believed in Christ as Lord when we trusted him. So we know this. We understand it. But I think in practice, it's easy for this to kind of begin to recede. And what it tells us, if Christ owns us and if we belong to him, and that's at the very heart of what it means to be a Christian, then it reminds us that life is not about your dreams. It is not about your comfort, your goals, or your personal fulfillment. We live in a society that worships self, a society that worships personal fulfillment, personal fulfillment in family, in diet, in exercise, in job, in working life and retired life. We live in a world that is consumed with how can self be fulfilled? How can my dreams be met? And this just seeps its way into the crevices of our hearts as Christians. And so we constantly need to be reminded that that life, that life of pursuing self-comfort, self-fulfillment, self-goals and dreams dies when we come to Christ. And now all that we are and all that we pursue is governed by this one reality. We belong to Jesus Christ. That is what it means to be a Christian. That's the overarching and most fundamental descriptor for a believer. But Paul doesn't stop there. He wants to fill this out. He doesn't want to just give us the big picture or the core. He wants to fill this out a little bit more. And he does so with two descriptors. So here we go. Two descriptors that fall under this overarching or umbrella idea that we belong to Christ. So we're still looking at our second point that they are identified Christologically. We've seen the overarching. Now I want you to see two descriptors that he gives for these believers, for all believers. First, his readers, his Christian readers, then and now are loved by God. Verse 7. Now, this is such a huge idea. Loved by God. There are so many things that could be said about this. Uh, we could preach, I think, many, many sermons. We won't do that, but we could preach many, many sermons on this phrase alone, loved by God. But I want to just try to capture it briefly for us, uh, the essence of it for us here uh, with, as we look at, at the phrase here in Romans 1. So this love of God, this just trying to kind of get at it, it's a multifaceted idea, it's a massive idea, but one way we can think about it is that this love of God is before time, in the fullness of time, and in our time. So let's look at each of those briefly. It is, it is before time because that is when God lovingly chose us to be saved. Remember we talked a moment ago about being predestined and being called and the relationship between those that we find in Romans 8, 30. 
Well, here I want you to see that God's love towards us has to be traced all the way back to before we even existed, and for that matter, before anything uh, in, in this world, before the world existed, before time began, when God chose lovingly to save us. Ephesians chapter 1, verses 4 to 5 makes this clear. It says this, Paul says this there, even as he chose us in him, so God the Father chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. And then listen to this, in love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ. So what we're told here is that we are chosen in love before the world was created to be the loved adopted children of God. This goes all the way back to before time began. That's amazing because that means that any love we experience from God now has to go back to to before there was even time, before there was any act of creation. So that's the first aspect of it that we see. Second, it is in the fullness of time. So it's, it's before time, but it's also in the fullness of time because that is when God sent the Savior. So we get this language, Galatians 4, 4, but when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son. And then we get in John three sixteen the fact that this sending was done in love. So most of you know these words, for God so loved the world that he gave his only Son. So he loved us before time. He loved us in the fullness of time at the Christ event when he sent his son into the world. And finally, it is in our time, in our own individual conversions. So Ephesians 2, verses 4 to 5, But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead, in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. Do you see that language, the repetition of the word love? Because of the great love with which he loved us. So the love of God towards us as Christians can be seen before time, in the fullness of time, and in our own time, in our experience in the now, and in our experience when God saved us. You know, the the Ephesians 2 picture, this is who we were, But God, God saved us radically, and now we are experiencing the fruit of that that salvation from the love of God. But most importantly, most importantly, this love of God, this love that God has for us is in the Beloved. I love this point. Ephesians 1, 6. We got to go back to our our Christological focus here. According to Ephesians, as Paul describes, Paul has so much in in his epistle to the Ephesians. He has so much to say about how much Christians are loved. But he makes this point very early on in that epistle. Ephesians 1, 6. He says that we are loved. We are chosen in the beloved. We are chosen and loved in Christ. And that means that God's tender, caring, faithful, 
patient disposition towards us is always in Christ. Always through Christ, His beloved Son. So I just want to ask you, as we think about this little descriptive phrase, loved by God, do you know this, Christian? Do you really, really know this? Are you assured of this wonderful reality that God really does love you? He has loved you from before the world began, and He has demonstrated His love to you in history and in your history, in your story, in His great story, and in your specific story, every detail of your life, in the fabric of your routines and daily life, before you were born in your mother's womb, and every breath you have taken, God loves you. It amazes me as a dad, as a father, to think, as the scriptures make clear, that that God's love for us. I know how much as a dad I love my children. And as a parent, you know how much you love your children. And that love, it's as nothing compared to the love that God has for His people, for us. So I think that if nothing else, that just gives us such strength. It gives us such strength to face the challenges that we have before us right now, whether those are economic challenges for you or health challenges. Uh, We don't know even now who in our congregation will be affected by the coronavirus and to what extent. This is a very strange time. It's a very unique time, but what, what a bedrock, wonderful truth that we can never forget. God loves each of us, those of us who belong to Christ, those of us who are in the beloved. And this love of God, which is totally apart from our works, it goes all the way back to the beginning, provides the basis for the second descriptor that we have here. Our being called, as Paul will say, loved by God, called to be saints or holy ones in verse 7. So we're looking at these two descriptors, loved by God and then called to be saints. As Christians, as those who belong to Christ, as those who are loved by God, what is our calling? What are we called to? You know, this language of calling, I think, is, uh, is very much a part of how we think about the Christian life. We, we think about our calling, our vocation, or maybe you use language like this. What is God's will for my life? I think oftentimes we're talking there about vocation. What does God want me to do with my life? What is His calling for me? People often talk in these terms, a very subjective sense of purpose while they live on the earth. And that's, I think, a part of, of how we think about our lives. And that's perfectly fine. There's, there are many ways that, that we view this based on Scripture. But Paul here gives us our calling in verse 7. If you want to know, Christian, what your real calling is, a foundational calling, what's it all about? 
every sphere of your life, everything that you're doing, your job, your family, everything, what is your calling? And the answer is found for us here, to be God's saints, to be God's holy ones, to be consecrated or set apart or separated to him. That is your calling Christian. Whatever job you have, and you may have many different jobs throughout your life, whatever wherever life brings you throughout over the world. Right now, you live here. If you're a part of Four Corners Church, you live here in Noonan, but who knows where you will live in years to come. Wherever God brings you, in whatever job or, or place He puts you, this is your calling. And it's interesting that this title, saints or holy ones, is used in the plural throughout the New Testament. It is, it is a collective term. It is about our collective identity as the holy people of God. Each of us, we know, is called to be holy in a personal sense. But I think sometimes, given the individualism of our culture, we tend to just kind of stop there. We're very, very individualistic in how we think about the Christian life, in how we think about even ideas like holiness. But what we find in the New Testament is that it is a corporate term. It's a collective idea. We are, as Peter says in 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 9 to 10, we are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that we may proclaim the excellencies of him who called us out of darkness and into his marvelous light. Once we were not a people, but now we are God's people. Once we had not received mercy, but now we have received mercy. This is who we are. And the emphasis very much is on our collective identity. And I think this just reminds us of the importance of, uh, of, of the church, of belonging to the church, of being attached to the church. And we feel this angst right now. We are, I hope, pursuing spiritual disciplines personally, and we're with our families, and we're carrying out the Christian life in various ways. But I hope that individually we feel the, 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 the kind of lack of not being able to gather corporately and to be that expression of the collective holy ones of God. Living a holy life, I want you to see, is about living out what you already are. Notice, Paul does not say to the believers in Rome, those who are becoming holy. We know that we are increasingly growing in holiness. We are, we, sanctification is a process. We are growing in, into the likeness of the Holy Christ. But it's interesting here, that Paul describes the believers as those who are already the holy ones of God. They are already God's saints. We are that now, and with our guilt removed and our hearts cleansed, we, we then go out and we live out that holiness in every sphere of life. But this is who we are. And I think this is important to remember because 
as we think about living a holy life and as we think about mortifying our flesh and and, uh, pursuing holiness, it is easy to be thinking in terms of attaining something out there. It's easy to think in terms of pursuing something that, that we need to have. But what the New Testament gives us, rather, is it gives us identity as the holy ones of God, as God's saints, and then it calls us to go out in the power of the Spirit and to live the life that is in accordance with who we already are. So Christian, you already are. If you are truly a Christian, you already are a saint of God. And consider this, we are all saints, as we see here. All of those in Rome, all those to whom he's writing, all Christians are saints. It is simply not biblical to call only some Christians saints. Now, I will sometimes use this language, particularly if I refer to uh, Saint Augustine. His name has uh, he, that's how he's referred to by most people. Very, very few people will call him Augustine of Hippo, where he was a bishop. Uh, people will, or just Augustine. Most people will refer to him as Saint Augustine because it helps to distinguish who we're talking about. But this, this practice within the history of Christianity of certain people being canonized by the Roman Catholic Church to become saints, or certain people are saints, is utterly not biblical. All Christians are saints. All believers are the holy ones of God by nature and by position in Christ. One commentator puts it this way, and I love this quote. He says, When Paul writes to all God's beloved in Rome who are called to be saints, he is writing not to people likely to figure in stained glass glass windows, but to a somewhat motley collection of shopkeepers, minor civil servants, converted prostitutes, prize fighters, and slaves. These are the people called to be God's holy ones. And such are we, all of us, all of us. If we are Christians, we are God's saints. As John Chrysostom, one of the early church fathers, says, we which were enemies and disgraced, As we think about this entire point here, identified Christologically, as we think about both of these descriptors, loved by God, called to be saints, called to belong to Jesus Christ, even before that, hear these words of John Chrysostom. We which were enemies and disgraced have all at once become saints and sons. Praise God that that is who we are. Every time we look at our reflection in the mirror, Every time that we rise and go to sleep, we are reminded of our weaknesses. We sin, we stumble, we are weak. What a blessing to know that we who are Christ's are loved by God and called to be saints. We have become saints and sons, the sons and daughters of the living God. Finally, To come to our third point, 
this morning, we see that Paul describes his audience as being blessed comprehensively. So they are positioned missionally, as we've seen. They are identified Christologically. And now, finally, we see that they are blessed comprehensively. Now we are brought to the last words of the greeting, the end of verse 7. Here's what Paul says, Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. This is many things. It is a greeting, it is a blessing, and it is a prayer. It is all of these things at once. And it is packed so tight with meaning. Once again, you could just take these phrases, you could take these words, and you could explore them for weeks on end. But most importantly, I want us to see, it's a greeting, it's a blessing, it's a prayer, but I want us to see that it tells us a little more about these Christian readers. We've already gotten a number of details about them, but here we get even more. It tells us about Paul's readers then, and it tells us about those of us who are reading it now. We are blessed comprehensively. Now, why do I use this language? Why do I say here that uh, these words imply that they are blessed or we are blessed comprehensively? Well, the language of grace and peace is comprehensive in nature. And it is the language that Paul chooses to use throughout his letters. This is the language of greeting that Paul chooses to use as he addresses God's people in his letters. This language covers all of salvation. It concerns our past, present, and future. It begins with God's undeserved favor towards us, moves through our reconciliation to God in Christ, and ends with perfect bliss in a new heaven and a new earth. All of that is packed into these two words, grace and peace. Peace, which is a Hebrew greeting, implies every blessing. Uh, for the, the Hebrew, shalom or peace is an idea that, that really captures wholeness or fullness. It involves everything. It's kind of every blessing you can imagine piled up as one. And that is what the Hebrew concept of shalom entails, wholeness and fullness. Paul has replaced the normal Greek greeting, kairain, which generally means hello or greetings. That would be the normal way that a Greek speaker would greet someone in his or her letter with, with kairain. Paul has replaced this with the similar sounding and infinitely more meaningful word, charis. So, so as someone would write a, a, a normal letter, and we even have New Testament letters that, that are introduced in this way, uh, Paul wants to use that very familiar language, but he wants to, to tweak it and to use the word grace to remind Christians of who they are, even as he greets them. This is who you are, Christian. You are one who has been graced and who has received peace. You are a recipient of this grace and peace that Paul refers to in Romans chapter 5 verses 1 and 2 
those first two verses of a new section of his letter. Uh, Paul will move at the end of Romans 4 from one section of his letter. As we think about how we're going to go through the whole of, of, of Romans, at the end of verse 4, one section ends, and at the beginning of verse 5, another section begins. And so what we find here are these words, verses 1 and 2, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, which is what, Paul, what occupies Paul's attention in chapters 3 to 4, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through Him we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. I want you to notice how grace and peace come together in chapter 5, verses 1 and 2. But even more, I want you to notice that this language of grace and language of peace has as its focus a relationship with God. Access by faith into this grace in which we stand. What is entailed in this language of grace and peace is relationship with God. We have come as Christians, the Roman readers of Paul's letter have come as Christians to know God, to walk with God as Enoch did, to walk with God as Noah and Abraham did, to know Him every moment of every day. He is with His people. That is what it means to be a Christian. Grace and peace, relationship with God. But this blessing is not just comprehensive. Remember, blessed comprehensively. It's not just comprehensive in terms of what we receive, as we just looked at. It is also comprehensive in terms of whom we receive it from. And here we come to the final words of Paul's greeting, where he says, from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. So grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. This language in which Christ is set alongside of God the Father reminds us that we are loved and saved by every person of the Trinity. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, who was mentioned earlier, have all lavished us with love holiness and blessing. The Father loves us. The Son loves us. The Spirit loves us. And the triune God as Father, Son, and Spirit loves us. He has called us to be those who are holy, those who are graced, and those who have peace. From beginning to end, from the inside to the outside, from the vertical to the horizontal, this is who we are. I want to leave you this morning with a final quote that I think captures well the thrusts of Paul, the thrust of Paul's description in these verses. And it's a quote that comes from Leon Morris. This is what he says. When we think of our position as Christians, we are inclined to think first of what we do, of what we do. And so we speak of our faith or our commitment 
or the like. But Paul stresses God's initiative. Paul stresses what God has done. Notice that in these verses, Christians are being described as Christians. And what is the emphasis of Paul? What God has done, not what these Christians in Rome have done, but what God has done. May this be our stress as well. When we think about our salvation, when we talk of our salvation, let us describe it in terms much like the psalmist uses in Psalm 145. God's mighty acts, wondrous works, and awesome deeds. That's what God has done. That's what you ought to attribute your salvation to. We are Christians because God has done mighty acts, wondrous works, and awesome deeds through Christ, His beloved Son. That's why we are who we are, and that is why we will be who we will be. Praise God. Let's pray and thank the Lord for who we are in Christ. Father, as we come to a passage like this, a greeting, it's easy to just fly over and see these as formal words that early Christians used to greet each other and just leave it at that. But Father, what, what a wonderful thing it is to get all of this rich content regarding who we are in Christ. Lord, thank you this day for showing us, for explaining to us what it means to be a Christian, what it looks like, and just reminding us, Lord, who we are, those whom you have mercifully graciously saved. Father, we give you praise. You have saved us from darkness and from sin. Lord, if it were not for your predestining of us, your, you predestined us, you called us, you converted us, you gave us a new heart, you regenerated us. If it were not for your mighty acts, your wondrous works, your glorious deeds, your awesome deeds, we would be on our way to hell. God, we praise you that you have shown us this grace. And we ask you, Father, to help us grow in the knowledge of our salvation. Help us grow in the assurance of our salvation. And help us spread the knowledge of salvation to those we meet, to those in our homes, to those we've not yet met. Father, that all the world might hear of the mighty deeds of our God through our Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you for this time in your word. We pray that you would use it for the obedience of faith in the hearts of your people and for the sake of Christ's holy name. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.